2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 11th, 2017, the Tuesday Night Massacre Edition. We are... We're live at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C., just three blocks away from FBI headquarters. In front of an enormous crowd comprised entirely of fired FBI directors cashiered acting attorneys general, axed U.S. attorneys, booted EPA science advisors, and dumped directors of the U.S. census. Oh, and defeated presidential candidates. And you know what? You are all maybe unemployed, but you look really fired up and good. So welcome. I'm, I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my right, is the very person I would most like to talk to about James Comey is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. And to Emily's right is the person I most want to talk to about whether what's happening in Washington is unprecedented. Face the nation's John Dickerson. Howdy, John. Hi, David. On this week's GabFest, the defenestration of FBI Director James Comey, who is tossed out the window of the FBI building on Tuesday night. Actually, he
3: was in L.A. That
2: was a metaphor. That was a metaphor. (laughs) Uh, What will that mean for the Russia investigation? What will that mean for the Republic? Then we're going to discuss the state of conservatism in the Trump era. Does such a thing still exist? What, What does it mean? Then, our third topic, for reasons that will become obvious in a moment, will be what can Washington, D.C. learn from Utah, and what can Utah learn from Washington, D.C.? Plus, we will have a cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, it'll be our own mini town hall. Imagine that I'm a Freedom Caucus representative. Come come home. Emily is a, is a Tuesday group mocker of some sort. John, an embattled... Uh, an embattled senator facing a tough re-election campaign, you can give us your very, very best and hardest questions. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfestplus to join. And while this might seem weird to say this in front of a crowd in Washington, D.C., I also want to call your attention, listeners at home, to a live show we're going to be doing in Denver on Wednesday, June 7th at the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And we're going to have a special guest for that show, who's going to be Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado, will be the guest. If he has not yet, if he hasn't yet been fired, we never, we don't know. Maybe he'll have been fired. I don't fired, think but.
3: Trump can fire him. Okay. It'd be
2: hard. Well, if he has been fired, he'll have time. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for that show in Denver on Wednesday, June 7th. We are going to be joined for the show by a very special guest. Uh, Evan McMullen was a 2016 independent presidential candidate. He is the co-founder of Stand Up Republic, which is a nonprofit devoted to advancing and protecting democracy, which is... <laughs> that's needed. That is needed. So please join us in welcoming Evan McMullen to the GabFest. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Evan. How is, how is uh, protecting democracy going?
4: Uh, it's tough out there, I gotta say. I gotta say. But uh, the, the cause is, is an important one, and we're very motivated. Evan, I yeah.
3: want to say before we start... Oh, no. Uh,
4: yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do an actual segment in a second. It's awkward. It's very uh, awkward. This
3: is too much buildup. So my kids, my teenagers Good. are big fans of yours, and oh, they wow, okay. are one of the reasons you're here, because when we were thinking of guests, they were really excited. Um, but they dared me to mention on stage their nickname for you.
4: Okay. So I have to do
3: this. You seem like you're... Is you, it a new one? Well, I don't know. You, you can tell us. They okay. like to call you Egg McMuffin at home. Oh. Have you heard that before?
4: I have. I think you may be troubled to know that that's the alt rights nickname <laughs> for me. So why are, are you raising little alt-right right
3: babies? That is that's a good the concern. <laughs> they thought they were so original. They're going to be a little
4: crushed. It's very this. Trumpian. There needs to be some punishment there. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but I, I will say, in all honesty, if if your political opponents are going to name you after a delicious breakfast sandwich. Then you're doing something right.
3: That's right. Good yeah. association. What else should you
2: get? What would be yeah. another delicious breakfast sandwich that you would want to be named after? Huh.
3: French toast.
2: Yeah. It's not
5: strictly speaking a sandwich.
3: Blueberry pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
5: that's even less. Of also, a not in the sandwich category.
3: Why am I restricted to sandwiches? That's even narrow. A smoothie. You just narrow. A sandwich. <laughs> so what?
2: Uh, oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> this is why. This is why Trump won. Apparently. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs>
2: President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey on Tuesday, acting on the recommendation of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Right. Trump fired Comey ostensibly for his mishandling of the Hillary Clinton email case. (laughs) Comey learned he had been fired from seeing it on TV. The presumption on the left and maybe on the right and maybe in the middle is that there's something more at work here. Comey, of course, had been leading the investigation of Trump's Russia ties, an investigation note that Sessions is recused from, and the presumption is that Trump might have been more scared of what the investigation could turn up than from the fallout of Canning, the most independent investigation that he faces. So um, first question to you, Emily, does the FBI director owe loyalty to the president?
3: Um... No, he really doesn't. He's supposed to have a 10-year appointment. He can be hired and fired by the president. He's not his own separate fourth branch, of course, but he does not owe any kind of personal loyalty or fealty to the president. And some of Comey's friends, I guess, are certainly putting out the idea that that was the main reason or one of the reasons that Trump fired Comey was his lack of personal loyalty. And then the other idea that was spreading today was that the Russian investigation is actually picking up as opposed to fading away. I wonder, though, from just the incredibly, like, bulldozing, clumsy nature of this, if Trump just got mad and just kind of did this in a fit of pique almost without really thinking through all the ramifications. And even though I find the ramifications for the rule of law really, really alarming, I'm not sure that—I feel like that's just collateral damage.
2: So, so it's it, it's been called a constitutional crisis, but, Evan, the president absolutely has the right to fire— James Comey, right? Yes. What in what sense is this a constitutional crisis? Why is this mm-hmm. not simply president replacing a person who has the right to replace?
4: I don't know that I would characterize it as a constitutional crisis. I think it I think it's certainly a challenge, it's certainly alarming. I think it was motivated by Donald Trump's uh, desire to impair seriously or if not fatally the FBI's investigation. Uh, but I don't see it as a constitutional crisis. He was acting within his authority. Yes, it's very troubling for those reasons, but it's not a constitutional crisis. And by the way, just because something's not a constitutional crisis doesn't mean it's not a big, fat crisis. We, sort of, we tend to think that it's, it's only a real crisis if it's a constitutional crisis. There are a variety of other types of crises. As we're learning, right? I mean, we, it's a new one every day.
3: They count too. We're being
4: educated. But by what's
3: the what's the difference in terms of whether it's constitutional or not between this and the pressure that Nixon put on his attorney general to file the spe- fire Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor? The parallel being that. Comey was investigating the president in the same way that Cox was. So, if that, so I'm not, I also think the word constitutional is a little weird, but we use it for Watergate and for that Saturday night massacre. So, is it the wrong term here?
5: Well, I'm going to ignore that question, but the difference in the Saturday night,
3: I bet Evan had something
5: to say about that. The Saturday night, and Evan can jump in, but the, the difference, at least one big difference between the Saturday night massacre is that Nixon ordered the Saturday night massacre, whereas in this case, and this is where um, the deputy attorney general
3: played a role played a
5: role and and in theory according and this is one of the great questions so if you believe what the white house has said the deputy attorney general launched this 14 days why ago why would you
1: believe it nobody white house has
5: believes said. that <laughs> hold on no it's but that's, fair th- th- question. Th- this is then a super super important question if you think it's totally a lie then they've uh, almost
6: backed uh, off Rod of it themselves but, haven't but they? hold
5: on hold on okay. the deputy attorney general was Uh, confirmed 80 or 97 to 3 or something he worked he was he's worked for both Obama George W. Bush Clinton Uh, he come he came into the job with sterling credentials and he has now if you believe this is a lie okay somebody who has a 30-year career as a prosecutor has now created a totally false three-page document At the behest of Donald Trump, that is the thing that, so you may think Donald Trump lies with, but he then would have had to create this whole fake thing, throwing away basically 30 years of his career on the orders of the president. That seems to me the most interesting thing uh, here, because he's the actor who is acting most, if you believe the story you guys do, he's the one who's acting the most against type.
3: Well he is my mystery man for that reason but I don't think I think you overstated slightly. So I do when I was doing reporting on the Department of Justice last winter everyone said Rod Rosenstein man of integrity by I did not find a person to say I'm really worried about having him as the deputy attorney general. Everyone found that reassuring. So something happened here that I think is um, going to change his reputation forever. But I don't think you have to think he created a totally false document. He, most of the, I, I disapprove of the style, the kind of op-ed-like gotcha quality, but his points about mistakes that Comey made, problems that arose, were legitimate. And then the question is, why is he allowing it to be used to this purpose? That's
5: the point, right. Okay. And also, here's another thing that's just weird and bizarre, which is, first of all, claims he makes in the three-page document are not true. I mean, the part about Hillary Clinton, that seems to be fine. But he claims that the public has this great crisis of confidence in the yes. FBI. Right. You know what the approval rating is, the trust rating of the FBI is? 80% in a Fox poll in February. Oh, Supreme Court is 83%. Military is like 87 It's one of the three highest... Then he said, and "Now also, it's
3: going to go down, right? But, this is the
5: crisis." And he also said there was, you know, Democrats had called for. He overstated the nature of the call for for Comey yes. to step down because of what he'd done. So there are legitimate criticisms of what happened with the Clinton emails, which he delineates quite clearly and completely. But in overstating those two facts, that does call into question this reputation. Nevertheless, he would be making a serious change from the practice of his last 30 years if this were a charade.
3: But even if you accept it at face value, it's a serious change because then you have to believe he really thought that the mistakes in the Clinton investigation were grounds for firing Jim Comey right now. Right. And that was such a... The timing is so suspect and sure. illegitimate. That, you know, it doesn't add up either way. I
4: have to say on this, I mean, it seems to me that you are... You're acting as though you're witnessing the compromise of someone's integrity for the first time in the Trump era. I mean, Just run, this, Rosenstein. Is, this is what happens. I mean, uh-huh. this is why I'm sitting up here. This is, you know... Uh, You know, I I saw this in 2016 during the primaries. I saw Republicans sort of get on board, not all of them, but many Republican leaders sort of say, you know, make that decision that they were going to be with Donald Trump. And when you make that decision, you're signing up for doing things like this, doing things that you otherwise wouldn't do. Sean Spicer has changed a lot since taking this current role. Um, he
3: wasn't Melissa McCarthy
4: before this? Yes, no. Uh, but, but this is what happens, and I know it's hard to see it, but it is what it takes to be part of the Trump team in most cases at that so senior level. So let's,
2: let's dig into that, Evan, because one of, the, I think, the presumptions of the Constitution, the way the Constitution is set up, is that individuals are actually untrustworthy. The Constitution kind right. of presumes that individuals are untrustworthy, right. which is why we have the try. Separation the of separation powers. of powers we have these three different institutions that, mm. that check each other and we have a so we have a completely untrustworthy executive right. who has shown himself to be a liar and, and, and irresponsible in every way that someone could be irresponsible mm. what do we do about the fact that the other elected branch of government, in particular Republicans in Congress seem unwilling to, to challenge that and to add, mm-hmm. to conformed their institutional responsibility.
3: And do you think that is going to change?
4: Well, I I certainly hope it does and and it has slowly. I mean, Donald Trump started out with Republican approval ratings in the 90s. I mean, it's it's it's, it's been incredible, down to the but high 80s. it's it's slipped down to the high 80s. So if we're looking for for room to be optimistic, there there, there it is. But you know, you did see in response to this Comey situation, you saw, you know, Representative Gallagher, a freshman uh, from Wisconsin who replaced Reed Ribble. He went out with a strong tweet storm today. Wait,
2: but Evan, you just met, your example is some guy no one's ever heard of who's a freshman. I mean, we don't have Mitch McConnell or. Wisconsin.
4: But we don't have Mitch. We don't have, we don't have like the senior yeah. Yeah. members. There was yeah. There was no, yeah, you had. You you had many senior members. The senior ones are easy. Those are the ones, that are the Flake, the John McCains, they're out there anyway. And they mean something. They mean a lot. But what you're really looking for is on the margin, the changes. And and when somebody from a state that's really critical, even if it is a freshman who you've never heard of, says all of a sudden, this enough is enough, that's really important. So you, there are these, these green shoots. Yep. Green John,
2: are there enough green shoots for there to be... Congressional action of 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 an independent investigation.
3: Doesn't McConnell just control this?
5: Uh, yes and no. I mean, he controls it until he doesn't, until there's a, until he's overrun. I think. Um, but I think there's more to kind of pick apart here in what actually happened. We should note some of the things that are extraordinary about this, which is that the president had praised Comey for some of the behavior that was in the bill in particulars for why he was fired.
3: And in fact, praise is like the, right. He sort of gleefully yeah. used it on the campaign trail a lot.
5: Um, and I do think it's important to think if you guys, if you think that this was really the, the president said at some level, will, will no one rid me of this troublesome FBI director, and then the deputy AG basically answered that call, that's a, that's a bigger deal, that's a big deal. And if that's, I mean, that has yet to be proved. But the other thing is, let's imagine this was really the way it happened. Also, but can I just say one other thing? When Rosenstein went through his confirmation hearing on the 4th, so about a month before... You know what didn't come up at all in the hearing? The state of the FBI, which if you read the document, the state of the
3: the FBI
5: was in such chaos. The, 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 The institution, the beloved institution, was under such threat that the director had to be removed. And yet it was not a topic of discussion at all in the confirmation hearing for the person to whom the FBI director reports. Then also, let's imagine that the Bill of Particulars was right. The way it was handled where the press secretary doesn't really even have answers about what's happening, where it makes Rosenstein look terrible because Comey doesn't know he thinks it's a joke when he's giving his speech and it shows up on the... If you were trying to make this look horrible, you probably couldn't have arranged it in a worse fashion.
3: Right. Even if if it was
5: totally legit. Just the way
4: it was handled is so quizzic,
2: so strange.
3: Right. I mean, right. Yeah.
2: Is he going to get away with it, Evan?
4: No, I actually I don't. I don't think so. I think this will be an inflection point. I think, you know, this demonstrates yeah, maybe not a sharp angle, probably not a very sharp angle uh for, for those of you who <laughs> study these things. But somewhat of a maybe it's like this. Um, but no, I, I do 6% think great. Yeah, exactly. But I, I do think that it gives additional legitimacy to the notion that there's something really troubling here that happened during our election that needs to be investigated, that the the American people, uh, you know, deserve to know more about, and, and I think there will be more motivation in in the media and the press. I mean, I can't speak for you, but I hope that's the case. And I think there will be more motivation in Congress. and And I want to make clear that you know I'm first among those who have been frustrated by what I've seen in Congress over the last couple of years, especially around Trump and his rise and all of that. But, you know, I think it's important to to maintain hope.
3: It also seems important that the first article of impeachment for Richard Nixon mm, is yeah. about obstruction of justice. And it the quote is interfering or endeavoring to interfere with the conduct of investigations by the Department of Justice of the United States, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. I mean, even if... Mm-hmm. The Russian investigation does not prove collusion. Right. We still have the spectacle and the reality of the president threatening rule of law by removing the person who is investigating him.
2: But I yeah, but Emily, it's I mean, until 202018 there is going to be a Republican majority in the Senate and the House, and do you think I was Watergate John was with a Democratic House majority during Watergate? Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's the capacity for the Democrats to bring an investigation at this moment seems pretty limited.
3: Right. Except for the sort of what John said that McConnell will be in control until he's overrun. If there's enough political pressure and outrage across the country, then Republican senators, I mean, Senator Burr, for example, who's the head of the investigating committee for the Senate seems to, they, they issued subpoenas today that was a step they hadn't taken before there so right there's still some possibility for movement even if we don't get to articles of impeachment which you know that's that's meaningful
5: can i ask you a question david in your fondness for heterodoxy uh no the, the, which is one of the, the reasons i love man. you yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's imagine let's f- turn this another way which is James Comey will now get more scrutiny than ever before. The Russia investigation will now be looked at more uh, than it would have been previously. All determinations by the FBI will now be... suspect. Whoever is replaced will either A, have a confirmation hearing that will be a thorough revisiting of A, the Comey firing, and B, the entire Russia story. Or if it's a dead cinch walkthrough, it'll be somebody who is so squeaky clean that they will run an investigation perhaps even more rigorous than Comey. So why was this a good idea to get rid of the Russia investigation? Couldn't it have been the worst cover-up ever, as Rich Lowry puts Pro-
2: it? Yeah, no, probably it was. I mean, I think people ascribe strategy and intent to Trump that isn't there. I mean. it to me, this this does this looks like.
3: That's why I think it was a fit of anger.
2: Right, I, th- I think it's right. I mean, I think he probably got very angry at seeing Comey out there. I mean, Emily, you were—I won't steal your point. You can you make it in a second. That seeing Comey say that he was mildly nauseated was probably in, at
3: Trump's election. At Trump's election,
2: probably um, really got at Trump. Well, and, t- he, said,
3: he said, at said having interfered, but you could imagine Trump interpreting it as, "Hey, that's." Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and he all, like the, to be questioned right. all of the, all of the st- about yeah. active, Clearly, the
2: I'm legal sure documents that. that they developed were developed in the last twenty four hours or so. They had no strategy. It, it doesn't reflect anything which seems to be. Thought through, and therefore, um, it wouldn't it surprise me at all if it turned out to, to backfire on them. Um,
4: but you, so. you know, one, one thing I'll say about this is there, there's sort of this assumption that Trump is going to come out very quickly with another, with another director, a nomination. That may be the case. I mean, I'm not going to make any predictions, but he may also be quite content. To leave the FBI without a full right. a full time director, right. because director. what what do you what do you get? You get a weaker FBI. You get an empowered DOJ vis a vis the FBI, and there, there's where your political appointees right. are. And then you just stall and starve off the investigation. I Although think- I do want to say that I have a lot of confidence in the, the agents at the FBI. I've worked with them, in, you know, in former roles, uh, they're very dedicated people. But leadership matters. And isn't this just
3: a brutal situation for them? I mean, as Mm -hmm. I understand it, Comey was respected and by some FBI agents beloved. He was. So they lost their leader, and they're Mm -hmm. basically being told— I mean, they have a president who's been ranting about this investigation of the Russia ties as a witch hunt, as a waste of taxpayer money. They're being told that this thing they see is— I think, important and crucial to their professional identity doesn't matter by the guy who is ultimately the boss. I mean, how, it just seems dangerous to me, their morale, their lack of leadership, and also just, like, the message and this long, twisted set of tensions with the chief executive. I just worry about the damage to the, I mean, I'm not someone who's necessarily always, like, wants the intelligence community to be, you know, at its most... Rambunctious, but I worry about them really being, you know, stripped of morale here. Well,
4: well I'll say that I, th- I think with the, the deeper, the, the deep concern related to that is that uh, it erodes the rule of law in our country. All of a sudden, the president is no longer really held accountable. In many ways, he's not. He's he's not being held accountable by Congress. You know, Congress had in the republicans in congress had so much confidence in comey that during the election when things were going on with hillary and her her email situation republicans in congress actually decided not to take certain actions because they had confidence that comey was going to do his investigation do his thing the same thing was happening with trump so they sort of allowed you know allowed themselves a pass, a political pass, to let Comey and just let Comey investigate it. He's no longer there. And and I think it it really undermines the rule of law. So John, Obviously. do you
2: do you think that Evan's right that Trump is not going to bother to name some emasculated Lick Spittle to the position, but instead is going to just let it let it go? Because uh, he, he would have to name somebody who who wouldn't be an emasculated right, Lick. He's
3: not going to go for squeaky clean.
5: I think that might be his intent. It is, we should pause and step back and say that Emily mentioned the word witch hunt. I'm trying to think back to Watergate, whether Nixon called it a witch hunt. I mean, certainly, obviously... He acted
3: paranoid, right? No,
5: I know, but, but for the president to say that an ongoing investigation by the FBI, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees chaired by Republicans is a witch hunt, is out of the norm. I mean, it's normally... It's normally you say... Uh, You know, we're cooperating fully with the investigation. We've got nothing to hide. We look forward to the successful conclusion of this. And that's in the, that's, you just say that when you get out of bed. And so that's very, that's strange. Um, So I guess I'm puzzling through what is, what would be in his interest. I think obviously Congress would say, hey, we got to have a new director because obviously Democrats want. And so then how is how are they not going to call, how's the Judiciary Committee not going to call up the new, you know, I mean.
3: But they can No, right? I mean, they can't make this him name somebody. Of, yeah. We're going to withhold approval of your new director unless you uh, name a special prosecutor. Right. There's that discussion. There are a lot of competing tensions here. You know what I've been thinking about? So, you know, we used to have this Independent Counsel Act that was passed, I think, in 1978 and was allowed to expire because it drove both both parties crazy. So it was upheld as being constitutional by the Supreme Court and Scalia dissented. And the reason he dissented was he said that it created a fourth branch of government that was essentially not really a beast of the executive or the judiciary or Congress. And maybe we really needed that. Like maybe this is, maybe what we've discovered is that we had a fourth branch in the person of jim comey and the intelligence community because they, there was a norm a strong norm that if they were investigating the president or his top officials they were going to do that independently but, and now we found out that we don't have well that but anymore, it's because we don't that have a scary. second
2: branch that is willing to act we have a congress yeah, that is, that's right that will not be a responsible but, actor right
3: the other person we haven't talked about is Jeff Sessions. I mean, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, was supposed to recuse himself from anything connected right. to the campaigns, the investigations, and then he is writing a letter in the middle of this weighing in, I guess, because he decided that Jim Comey's firing was separate from the investigations, but it's not really.
5: Well, the President certainly didn't think it was separate. In his letter, he wrote, right. <laughs> While I greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation, I nevertheless concur with the judgment of the Department of Justice that you are not able... To so that seems like a tell, right? Well, this
4: is another thing. I'm
3: really interested in whether Jim Comey gets to respond to this. So Congress could call Jim Comey to testify. Right. He may be fired, but he's alive and well. And it seems to me for now, that... Sergey Lavrov was in town
1: today. But
3: if the president is citing these alleged statements of Jim Comey, then how can this president exert, assert... The executive privilege to prevent Comey from answering—that just seems to me like Trump really opened himself up there. I want to see that yeah. next,
1: Jeff.
2: All right. I want to. Yeah. Last question. We're going to go to you, Evan. So, if you were, um, you were, um, and you can dream. If you were a right. responsible conservative senator uh, mm-hmm. right now, and you were disturbed by what what Trump mm-hmm. had done, what mm-hmm. what tactics would you pursue to hold him ac- accountable, or to, to to make sure that the the investigation continues in the way it needs to, or? whatever it is. What do you what's the strategy that you would pursue?
4: Well well I think the the first step is simply making the case to the American people, making the case to Republican primary voters that this is important to do. Regardless of what party the president belongs to, Congress has a special responsibility to conduct oversight over the executive branch and certainly over the president, and we need to protect our ability to choose our own leaders and to hold them accountable. And and I would be making the case. And I think once someone starts to make that case, then you create space for others to come along and do the same thing. But somebody has to demonstrate that leadership. and And sadly, there just hasn't been enough of that. But I think that's where it starts. It starts with the courage, the willingness to take the criticism, the willingness to potentially put your own seat at risk. That's something you hear from members constantly. They think it's an okay thing to say and think. And that is, well, if I do that, I may lose my seat. Well, there are certain things that are worth losing your seat over, and this is one of them.
2: This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt Or, sister or friend, an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. What is the present and future of conservatism in Trump's America? This uh, intellectual and ideological movement, for a long time closely associated with the Republican Party, um, has a president who appears to not be in any meaningful way conservative, at least if you look at the conservative ideals espoused by conservatives over the past some years. with you in the House, Evan, it's a good chance for us to talk about this. Oh, boy. Uh, is the Republican Party a conservative party?
4: Uh, I, I still think it is, but it is under the leadership of somebody who is not. And it is drifting towards that, that non-conservative space and has been even before Trump, Drifting in that direction. What do I mean by that? When I say I'm a conservative, and what I've always meant by that for me is that, you know, the question is, well, what are you trying to conserve? Well, for me, I always thought we were trying to conserve, you know, liberty, life, equality, you know, rule of law, separation of powers, con- the constitutionality of our of our democracy, these kinds of things. Now, under Trump, conservatism is taking on a new definition that's more akin to the, the term you hear of, among ethno-nationalists in Europe, which is traditionalist, which is more associated with you know, white ethnicity and Christianity, uh, and that is in direct opposition of what we stand for as Americans. Um, it's in direct opposition. Mm-hmm. The truth is, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to the future of conservatism, but I will tell you that I'm less concerned about that word and its definition going forward as I, as I am about, um, about us sticking to these core principles, whatever we call ourselves the right, you know, we are a country that was founded upon the idea, the truth, that all men and women are created equal. And, of course, we haven't been perfect. We've been not very perfect over time, but the arc has been a positive one, although slow. That's what I hope the, the Republican Party will bend back towards. And, uh, you know, I hope to have whatever influence I can over that.
3: So that is very unifying, which is nice to hear. But what oh, but, about... so? I guess two things I wonder about, the size of government, the degree of taxation, these are, you know, issues that have divided conservatives from liberals in an important way. Um, So I'm curious... What your thoughts on how core you feel like that is to your conservative philosophy, or what it really means, especially in this moment where we're seeing this potential tax shift from you know trillions of dollars of taxes on the wealthy that have been redistributed heading back, or just blowing a big hole in the deficit for tax uh, cuts for the wealthy? Um, I was gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll save you the second part of the question. Okay, that all right, that's like a enough. lot already. Yeah.
4: Um uh well look, I would say first of all I want to stress that we are in a moment in this country in which we need to protect some very fundamental right. ideals, and they are yep. those which I mentioned earlier, I won't repeat them again. But protecting democratic ideals, norms, and institutions is really the name of the game right now. And that is not something that can be partisan. We cannot allow it to be partisan. Now, we still, the right and the left, should continue to have debates about very important issues. Bitter debates, even. I think there's more common ground than we realize. Politics have become so tribal, and so, you know, they prevent us from finding common ground that I think exists. But there still will be bitter debates about the size of government, taxation, all these things. Um, but I just want to point out that, that we cannot let those things uh, and other influences keep us from defending common ground around democracy. Right.
2: So, John, why is it that I mean, why is the point that Evan made just so absolutely true? Which is that that really the policy differences. I mean, I would t- I would accept like a, a a principled conservative president. I mean, for God's sake,s I would accept a Ted Cruz presidency right now. Um, with, if we were able to preserve some of the the, the kind of norms and institutions of government and make those systems work effectively why are more republican actual legislators uh why don't they believe that why are they so willing to to abandon what they perceive as the, these kind of fundamental principles at this moment
5: i mean because they're politicians and had, this has been the case you know uh but, but, but but we're, said, we're all
2: citizens right right well, but you know and,
5: and, uh, right but as you would point out is that we're all citizens but politicians are in a game or in a process that is not 100% pure ideological consistency on both the left and the right. And so the idea is you build a system where self-interest can be hemmed in by the system and everybody in pursuit of their self-interest in which they use their ideological views sometimes to mask their naked self-interest. Don't go overboard because you have a system of checks and balances that ultimately gets to a good result. But you know Buckley said that the conservative movement organized itself in opposition to Dwight Eisenhower. This is not a new thing where conservatives have been outside of and separate from their party, and so it's not it's i mean people think about it obviously now it 's an acute case, and there are people who are who've called themselves conservative, who have supported a president who is not in in all ways conservative. I would argue in his approach to regulation and deregulation he 's quite conservative, and so in that sense, you can find common ground, but I think ultimately. If you see the president as the vehicle through which you can repeal the Affordable Care Act, you can lower and reform taxes, you can uh, make the changes you want to make to entitlements and the education, federal education system and the EPA and the FDA and the FTC and the SEC and all those other institutions that are now headed by people who spent their careers trying to knock down those institutions, you're willing to put up with some, you know, downside on some
4: other things because you're getting a lot of upside on things you believe in. But I just have to say that exactly is, is dangerous. And that's, you know, these things, some of these, these things are very important for, for conservatives and I'm I'm not endorsing all of them, but, but I will say that, that the challenge is trading democratic ideals, norms, and institutions for policy wins that are important to you, as you point out, John, but they—they they are not as important as self-rule. They are not as important as our ability to choose our own leaders and hold them accountable. They—they they cannot be traded for those things. And by the way, I, I foresee that. I mean, we'll see how this presidency—we'll see how this presidency develops. But the Democrats are also at risk if Donald Trump puts forth a trillion-dollar infrastructure and transportation plan then you may see some Democrats willing to maybe take the edge off their criticism of, violation of de- violations of democracy in order to get a little more of that government money, that federal government money, and that can, that can be dangerous. I'm not saying they shouldn't work with them if that's what they believe, but we, should, we cannot compromise on self-rule.
2: Emily, do you think that the, what is happening in terms of the, the degradation of these democratic norms, institutions, and ideals... Yeah, those are the three. I'm trying yeah. to remember yours. Yeah, you're good. Uh, uh, you're
0: do you do think that well in
2: Iowa? Do you think <laughs> that that is? Do you think that represents in any sense an actual intentionality, a strategy of any part of the Republican Party, or do you just think that it is a byproduct of the fact that we have kind of a, a venal narcissist with no impulse control as president, and that's the it's the effect of it? But he's not. There's no intentionality to destroy these norms. Mm,
3: I think some of it is. Mo- it's somewhere in between. So if you want, if you don't think the government solves problems, if you're deeply skeptical of it, then you're more willing to run it down. Because even if you're the ones who are in power, if you leave the institution in a shambles, well, you've just proved your point that people can't trust Washington and the federal government should be smaller because it doesn't work effectively. And so in that sense, I think there is more willingness sometimes on the part of Republicans to compromise these norms because it serves their longer term purposes in a way that Democrats, just Democrats need the government to work to prove their thesis, and Republicans don't
2: do you think Evan, do you think that's true? do you think that that there that conservatives want government or there's a faction of conservatives who want government to be ineffective because it meets their principles uh,
4: no i you know i would i just i i think it's true for some maybe but but really it's it's it, it, i would say it in a different way conservatives tend to want more power located closer to people where it's more accountable and responsive to people my mother works in city government when people don't like what she does they show up on her doorstep okay i'm not wishing that upon anyone but the point mm, is just you that kind of are <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, you're right. Uh, the, the point is just that the power is so unaccountable in Washington. It's not that Republicans, healthy Republicans, not, not some of these, you know, uh, now that we've learned exist, um, who are supporting Trump, but, uh, but healthy that's Republicans. The entire
2: House Republican caucus and Senate uh, Republican caucus, by the I, way.
4: I, I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not the case. But look, you know, you, know, I think it's it's more about where government power is, and I would just say this: I I take your point, Emily. But we're in this moment here where we have a president with who absolutely has authoritarian tendencies, and you're still arguing for a large centralized government. Now is a moment where we may want to rethink that, and and I think. The right and the left maybe have something to learn from each other on this and other topics, and, and I think what the right has to offer, or the healthy right has to offer in this situation is, hey, maybe it isn't such a good idea to have so much power in Washington where it's less accountable to the people. And what we as conservatives, I think, can learn from the left, uh, and I take a lot of heat from for saying this, uh, more compassion, sympathy, and concern for for minority communities, for people who are struggling in America. And so these are things we can take from each other in this moment, but I think we've got to learn from it on both sides.
3: Well, I just want Ask a question about science. So one of the about most what? science and data. One of the most confounding things to me about this administration, but I actually think there are roots of it that go further back. Are the way in which conservatives, uh, the Republicans, are no longer, in some instances, responsible in the way they treat numbers and data. Um, you know, obviously in the climate change debate, this has come on, but just the running down of the CBO, for example, the idea that that's not a legitimate way to score the cost of a bill. There are just a number of ways in which Republicans have become really allergic to or or are questioning science and data. And I find that so confounding. That is not a it's not do a Emily lit-
2: do you, sorry, go ahead, finish.
3: finish. No, that's it. No,
2: do you do you do, do, you, dis- do you do you think that is a completely separate from the anti elitism which, which the anti elitist populist. It's
3: not separate at all. You're
2: right. It's I mean, so which, which oh, comes from which?
5: Well, I think it's separate, and they've been they've been complaining about CBO. Both sides have been complaining about CBO for a long time. That's, I think, separate from the. But this, because grand it's in your John, it's like a
3: skepticism about expertise. Yeah, that's expertise, right? right. That's why it's separate.
5: Yeah. That's why I'm saying it's separate. I'm huh. saying you. They can be the same, but you can. The the rise of the skepticism in about experts feels newer. The skepticism about CBO when it's not in your interest to be in support of CBO, and then supporting CBO when it's in your interest to support CBO, is a long-standing trope okay, of so Washington. Okay, so maybe I'm
3: making too much of that example.
5: Well, I think it. it, it I guess the, what feels newer is the death of expertise
4: um, right. and the systematic assault on truth. Period.
3: Right. Yeah. So this is the part. So what you said earlier about maybe conservatives have something to learn from liberals about compassion—that seems to me like a long-standing idea. Not complete, you know, not unassailably true. Not that it always goes in one way, but like the notion that liberals were more bleeding heart is one that's old. We're familiar with that. The idea that like liberals would be the ones who were standing up for who are marching for science—that is does not seem to me like a natural affinity. That again, or truth, like those should be partisan concepts i find that to be very <laughs> well, strange that we're in this moment
4: well we
2: well it's but everything has become partisan there it's it's really hard to find issues that aren't partisan sports have become partisan but it's
3: not e- yes i agree but it's not equal right like we i mean this is i don't want to absolve liberals of like always being true to the data and not fu- that's too much but the degree of Lying and skepticism about expertise is just feels so much stronger on the right, so much the province of Fox News right now. And that just
4: is straight. It doesn't. Look, it's it's tremendously troubling, and it's a terrible place for the Republican Party and the conservative movement to be. We should, that's not where we should be. But I will tell you that when you have a president who is authoritarian by nature, who decides that he's going to put his own interests before the interests of the country, which is what he's done. This is what happens when you decide you're going to put your own interests first, you have to then conduct an assault on truth so that you can't be held accountable. As you do that, you bring all the people you're leading who have jumped on board with you, you bring all of them along, and all of the sudden, you're the party fighting against truth, and and that is a terrible place to be, and that's why you don't follow people like this. And that's why the the Republican Party would be well suited to abandon. Do do you think, John, do you think there's any
2: chance that in 20 years that the people who are the anti-Trump conservatives are Democrats? Do you think that Evan is going to be the the Democratic governor of Utah one of these days?
4: It's not going to happen. No.
3: (laughs) That shouldn't but, be the but, answer, but no, no. right? Well, we idea, want Evan to, like, go reclaim the Republican Party. We don't want him to feel like he has But what if the like party is unreclaimable? To, well, then maybe there's another party that he helps can't, start. system can't
2: have three parties. Well,
3: maybe the Republican Party, if it's not going to adapt, then it needs to be...
2: Right? Like you Well, don't, but what happens?
5: What? So, wait, play out your scenario. Let's deal with it. So, your scenario would, would happen if, basically, President Trump has two terms, eight years, and it becomes...
2: The stuff was, of nightmares. That was here a
4: crowd <laughs> war. <Warren laughs> no,
5: but so, right, because that would have so that it would fully that he would fully inhabit the, the Republican Party yeah. would be fully associated with him. Right. And, and then you would have you couldn't there, go anywhere there's else. There's a
2: huge number of people who were left-wing intellectuals uh, 50 years ago who are now conservatives. They are now, they became the neocons, right? The neocons were people who basically yeah. started out of the Democratic, the scoop Jackson wing of the Democratic Party. They're now on the right. So why why is why is that not going to happen to Evan and and David Frum and Bill Kristol of all people? I mean, why why because it, it seems to me that the Republican Party as currently constituted has no home for you as it acts and as it
4: acts. I do in, feel rather homeless. Uh, go ahead.
5: Well, but it's also had those ebbs and flows where conservatives were in and then they were out. I mean, now in 1964, Goldwater lost, which Created a period where you know Hugh Scott and all the other get, and Rockefeller and all the other moderate Republicans said. Probably, yes. um, <laughs> oh
6: my god, that's so mean.
5: Said, "Okay, Never heard we found fun- Scott.
2: Have you ever heard of Scott? No, I
5: don't know. Who is he was Scott. a senator from Pennsylvania. <laughs> oh, oops, uh, he
6: got me. You made yes. him get me. That yeah. was a little anyway,
5: and a congressman from Pennsylvania. Um, oh. anyway, uh, wrote, no, a book, of him. wrote a book. Wrote a book Come to the Party' about the moderate wing of the Republican Party. Okay, so it existed after uh, after Goldwater, and then." Reagan comes roaring in. So it's not—it's totally possible for the party to kind of go like that, which is what they do. So it's not inevitable that they totally leave the party.
4: And David, I would say that parties have a long lifespan. The major ones do, right? But the Republican Party was once a third party, and it split off from the Whigs when you know, the Whigs were interested in moving back towards slavery, and, and the Republicans didn't want to do that. A couple of years later, Abraham Lincoln joined the party, became the party of Lincoln, Uh, and, and then, you know, here we are, but, uh, but my, my point (laughs) is, things come full circle. But my, My point is just that there, there can be disruption in the political parties. And I, I will tell you that my belief is that, and I don't know if it'll take, you know, 10 years or 20 years, but both the Republican party and the democratic party are ripe for disruption right now. And, and, and it may happen. And so, they, they, can, they can, parties can die, and, and new parties can gain momentum. It's, it, it doesn't happen very often, but it, it does happen.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Okay, we're gonna take the opportunity uh of Evan's presence here to to um have a little uh trans American comedy with an ITY, not EDY. Um so Evan, you are a native son of Utah. You ran very well in the presidential election, 21% of the the vote there. You attended BYU. Uh, You're a Mormon, which is 62% of Utahns are Mormons. we somebody out there. Um, You are also a creature of Washington, D.C. I think you live here. You live here now. You've worked for the CIA. You've worked for the House. We're similar. I've been to Utah once. I went to Park City. (laughs)
4: Awesome, great and I've place. Lived,
2: I've lived in D.C. all my life. Okay. Um, I also spent a night in Goblin Valley State Park in 1984, which was awesome. great. Have you ever been there? Good night? No. It was, it's a great night. place. Yeah. That's a great place. You should go there on the Green River. Um, but we're gonna we're, we want to have a discussion about what you've talked very eloquently, Mindigo, about what the parties can learn from each other. What can Utah and Washington DC learn from each other? I think we have a more Washington perspective. We're more interested
3: in what we can learn. No, from Utah I don't. I, right no, now. I think
2: Utah can learn from Washington. But Utah's are are the Utah economy is a very prosperous economy. It's growing fast. Utahs um, Utahns live longer and are generally healthier than Americans. Um,
3: other Americans, then, they are Americans. Yes, yeah, sorry then. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. That wasn't so this that was a wasn't cheap, but for now. You set yourself up.
2: So, do you think that that Utah is in fact the American paradise?
4: <laughs> wow. You know, I, I think I, I think you'd have to conclude that it is certainly one of them. I mean, we've got you know um, you know in Utah we in Salt Lake City in particular. Uh, we have the, the highest um, upward mobility rate in the country. So if you're born into the bottom quintile, you have a higher percentage opportunity, percentage chance to end up in the top quintile by the time you die wow. than in any other place That's, in America. And why? That's great. What's
3: your explanation for that?
4: Well, it, it's uh, it's a combination of things. It's a complex thing, but it basically it is the combination of state and federal run programs supported by civic engagement. Uh, you know the LDS Church has a very well-developed welfare program, and uh, and that contributes very heavily to it. But it it, it creates a, a an opportunity for people to to rise above their challenges, essentially not merely survive in poverty.
3: I have to say that when I was reading about. Utah and all its great attributes, I had this feeling that religion must be such an important part of this, that the cohesion of the society, the sort of sense of shared values must really be informing all of the um, positive attributes you're talking about. And then I couldn't decide what to do with that, not partly because we do have this thing in the Constitution called the Establishment Clause, but also because I the country is not becoming a more religious place for the most part and so then I wondered how replicable that lesson was.
4: Well, you know, I, I think that religion is a big part of it in in Utah, but you know, it shouldn't have to be. I, if we can find ways across America of just giving more to our communities and when I, I say that I mean volunteering more uh, giving more of your income not through taxes but just to, to support local good causes I mean that's if if, if you want to know I mean it's it's part of part of our faith that you you know you you fast once a month and the money that you you would have spent on food you know you're supposed to give to to the welfare system and you're you volunteer in the the welfare centers the storehouses and whatnot It's a thing that you do and and you don't need faith for that if you're not a person of faith or if your faith doesn't involve that That's fine. We all as individuals can decide to do that But we we have to because we can't the government has a role to play. Don't get me wrong We need a healthy safety net an effective safety net. That's all true But we have to do things, too. We have to, as individuals, play a role. Right.
2: I I just wonder. I mean, it seems to me the LDS church, with its emphasis on hard work, on family, no consumption of alcohol.
3: Healthier culture. Mormons
2: are much healthier than other Americans. uh, Live a lot longer. As a Mormon man, you're likely to live, I think, 10 years longer than than John is.
4: It didn't help me keep my hair, but... uh, Hopefully I'll uh, live a long time like um,
2: this. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, there's an, in, many Mormons go on mission, so yeah. that's, it's an international faith. Right, but it, right. do you, I, I mean, you said, oh, we can all replicate this, we can all go volunteer. I mean, is this actually, are those virtues replicable in places without a strong, kind of very forceful church system, which, is, which, is, which also has a lot of compulsion, which also, I mean, compulsion is the wrong word, but there's a lot of social pressure on you.
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a more of a negative way to put it. The more positive way well, would well, be... Uh, As Catholics call it guilt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's certainly Mormon guilt that I think more than rivals Catholic <laughs> guilt. But but I'll tell you that, There are you know, two Jews on stage. <laughs> this panel's about guilt. This is what <laughs> that's this is. right. We're here because of guilt. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I think, you know, it's very rewarding, actually, to give of yourself and to put a higher cause ahead of your own needs. And... And we need, you know, I said it before, but I'll say it again, we need more of that in this country and you get something, you get something in return for this service.
2: What does Washington have, John? You and I are true sons of Washington. What do we have?
4: I'm really eager to hear this. Yeah.
2: <laughs> all right, first of all, first of all, um, a lot more of what, diversity. a lot of what has yeah. Yeah, obviously more, yeah, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Public transportation. You guys don't have good public transportation.
4: No, no. There's people are pretty spread out. There, you know, there's some. There's light rail that runs along from Provo to Salt Lake, and there's, but it's, you know, it's have not. You ever, New have York you ever City. taken it? Uh, no. <laughs> 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 but hey, I don't. I don't even own a car. I Uber everywhere, so yeah. I live uh, responsibly. But no, our m- our
5: mountains are not really. Uh, we can't compete on ski slopes. Um, uh. But, but
3: the. the... We right. ski everywhere. The, I mean, Salt Lake is a nice city, but the cosmopolitan nature of D.C., right, the, and the way in which it has all these different people from different backgrounds, that's like a real... Yeah. And then you have to really make sure you're experiencing that and not only in your own kind of cohort.
2: One thing I think is, which which I I don't think is a strength of Washington or a weakness of Utah, is that Utah is, in fact, built on a massive federal... A lot of what makes Utah successful is actually a massive federal presence, is that the, the federal projects to build interstate highways to connect the the country, and Utah benefits massively from that, the trains, which earlier did that, um, the protection of federal lands, which actually makes Utah a great place to go vacation and helps the economy. Mm-hmm. And so the policies that we're setting here in Washington... Yeah
4: are really really helping out. I would (laughs) say it has more to do with with low taxes, limited regulation. You would say that, yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Also, you would want to
3: take over all those federal projects and have the state run them.
4: You're talking about federal lands. Yeah. Look, I think most... Look, for people who may not know this, you you should Google this map because it's quite incredible. About over 50% of the 11 westernmost states our federal land. And in Utah, it's like 65%. And so this co- this does cause a lot of problems, right? You know, for example, I would like to see most of that land in state control. I'd like it still to be public. I'd like it still to be protected. But for the people, right, for the people who are booing, I know, I know, you did this on purpose. You did this on purpose. You this on purpose. But you know, I, I was born in Utah and raised in Washington state. And it's, you know, every year we have these horrendous forest fires. Rural schools can't, we, we have rural school funding problems. I mean, it's, it's a terrible environmental problem. For people who are interested in facts and education, it's a real problem. You know, I think you're interested in that, Emily. So it's just, you know, the idea that, that local, that, that state environmentalists, that state land managers can't, can't handle this, I think is a really arrogant, Washington idea. Sorry to kill the mood, yeah. but no, but I really it. do. I, I really believe that. I mean, you know, they're not a bunch of idiots out there. They understand they want to protect the land. We love the land. We love we, we spend our time in it. Uh, you know, we just think that, you know, more of it should be in our control and protected by us.
5: Finally, someone else who believes in the common sense of people outside Washington.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, we've had some big fights
5: about that. The Evan I mean, think David thinks I'm a common time. sense elitist.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what does that See? mean? John John is
2: constantly John will constantly John who's lived in Washington even longer than I have is constantly invoking the, the common sense of the, the, the people in Reading, Pennsylvania that he's just been talking to or the the good folks in, in uh you know this or that town and in Iowa that he's been visiting. The real America. The real he really believes in a real America. I hate the idea of a real America. Washington D C this crowd is a real America. Whoever's in oh. you, you know Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. Of course
5: I've never said that.
2: You're the one who just... You imply it. Oh, now I'm on on the hook for what I imply. John, John, you know it drips from you, and it comes out of every pore. No, I just don't think think all wisdom comes (laughs) from the, like, block around where you live. I think I'm guessing (laughs) your (laughs) parents...
5: I think I'm guessing your parents came from somewhere other than Washington, D.C., and they have wisdom... (laughs) <laughs> like I said, not from Washington DC. And I bet their parents came from somewhere before that too. So just because you you don't happen to live no, in Washington but you DC ascri- doesn't you mean
6: do this thing it's of
2: ascribing superiority. virtue.
5: No, Which I ascribe virtue as a corrective to the notion that they're all dimwitted if they didn't grow up in the in the Washington DC area.
4: David, can I just... I want to say something about a very good point you made about diversity. And I will say, having spent a number of years in D.C., that is one thing I love about this city. Um, And I will say an interesting thing about Utah, too, is that we are not extremely diverse, and people know that. We are also the only state that has a Republican governor who continued to say yes to refugees. And... And the state—I mean, it's—you know—it's something that regular people are involved in. Regular people are volunteering their time to welcome refugees and to help them become accustomed to their new lives in America. That's something that you know we don't see across America enough, and it's—it's it's one of the things that that, uh, that I most admire and respect about the state of Utah.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Evan McNullen. What a great guest! Come Thank back you. anytime. Thank you. Your next president, possibly.
5: So Jim Comey sent a letter while we were here to the uh, Salt Lake City. To his no, (laughs) no, it's really weird. You
3: a letter just to you?
5: No, an email to the employees at the FBI that just came in. Oh, I have long believed that a president can fire an FBI director for any reason or for no reason at all. I'm not going to spend time on the decision or the way it was executed. I hope you won't either. It is done, and I will be fine. Although I will miss you all in the mission deeply. And then he goes on.
3: That sounds pretty classy. He still should come back and testify before Congress.
1: By law. See terms and, conditions 18 plus.
2: and now for cocktail chatter, Emily, when you are drinking yourself into a stupor to escape the living nightmare that has been this week, what will you be chattering about? This
3: isn't very escapist. I'm really I promise I'm gonna stop doing like worried chatters, but I have one more because I really do think this is. Big news that got buried this week, like so many other things, like the craziness of the Kushner family handing out visas to wealthy Chinese people. Um,
2: Or the census director.
3: That's what I want to share about. So the director of the Census Bureau, John Thompson, is stepping down suddenly at the end of June from the census in this moment where it's not clear that the census has all of the money it needs to properly conduct the 2020 census. There's, like, almost nothing that is more important than than conducting a good census. We need it for knowing who we are as a people, how many there are of each different kind of us. We need it for voting rights. We need it for education. They're just, it's crucial to research and data collection. And did I mention voting? I mean, I this is so important. And we really need to not lose sight of how important it is to make sure that we're lobbying for the census. Um Yes. Let's worry about the census. It's going to be really fun to have cocktail chatter with this weekend, right? No, that's good. Weekend, right? That's good. Yeah. That,
2: that, that, that John, is what is kid. your chatter?
5: So my chatter is an audio chatter. Uh, we're going to see if this works. I came across it while I was working on a, uh, the next episode of Whistle Stop, and it is a conversation between... Thank you. Uh, I'm on it. We'll get It's going to get done. Um it's been a busy couple of weeks. So it's about it's a conversation on uh, the 30th of April, 1973, between Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Nixon has that night just given his first press conference or his first public statement about Watergate, in which he's announced that Haldeman and Ehrlichman have uh, been fired from the White House. The president has had a lot to drink, and he is receiving a phone call of support from the governor of California, Ronald Reagan.
6: Ron, how are you? Just fine, and how are you? Well, I couldn't be better. You you must have... The time is so far different. You're about only 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock there, huh? Yes, yes. How nice of you to call. Well, I just wanted to know. We watched, and my heart was with you. I know what this must have been, and, and what this must have been in all these days and what you've been through, and I just wanted you to know that uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, I'm still behind. If you can count on us, we're still behind you out here, and, and uh, I wanted to know that you're in our prayers. How nice of you to say that. Well, let me tell you this, that, that we can be—each of us has a different religion, you know, Yeah. but God damn it, Ron, we have got to build peace in the world, and that's what I'm working on, and you're going to work on it and all the rest. I just want you to know I so appreciate your calling and give my my little brother's love to Nancy. How how did you ever marry such a pretty girl? My God! (laughs) Well,
5: just unlucky. So, uh, sorry, that was a little hard to hear. Uh, If you you look for it on uh, YouTube, you'll uh, live the full pleasure of it. One is the line about religion, right? We all worship a different God. But God, you know, then he... Immediately blasphemes. Um, but then the second thing is when he suddenly goes off and talks about how pretty Nancy Reagan is. Um, and then, which we didn't play for you, but which you'll uh, appreciate on YouTube, is at the end of the conversation, Nixon, I think he's chewing ice in whatever from the scotch in his glass, basically just hangs up on Reagan. <laughs> Um, anyway, it's a fun little, uh, it's a fun little detour. You probably don't want to play it at your cocktail parties because everybody will get a little bored. But, um, when but, you're drinking at home alone, drunk I mean, yeah. it's
3: definitely in the spirit of yeah,
5: that. If you drink at home alone in front of
2: YouTube, as I do, uh,
5: <laughs>
2: <clears throat> See, if you were a Utahan, you wouldn't do that. Huh?
5: Yeah. No, if I was in Utah, I'd be out breathing the fresh air and exactly. being vigorous and helping people.
2: My chatter today comes courtesy of my uh, dear colleague at Atlas Obscura Elliot Carter, who is here tonight. He's a great DC. historian. He wrote a story about something which is super weird, and even I as a, you know forever Washingtonian, never heard about. Um, and I want you to think about the Washington Monument and the place the space between the Washington Monument and uh, where the Tidal Basin is. Um, and that land and actually and then sort of encompassing the tidal basin so between the washington monument and the jefferson memorial i want you to cast yourself back to the late 19th century in the 1870s and 80s when when in one of the most gloriously weird projects in american history the united states fish commission built a series of lakes there in order to propagate carp they wanted to to encourage the production of carp in the United States.
3: Gefilte fish for all. Yeah.
2: And so they they dug a bunch of lakes and stocked them with carp. This was they were called the Babcock Lakes and they were named after Orville Babcock who was Ulysses Grant's presidential chief of staff. He'd been an engineer in during the Civil War and at the urging of the the chief of the Smithsonian, he picked out some German carp to stock these lakes and they started to give the this fish away to um to people around the country who wanted to stock up their lakes, which incidentally caused a huge carp problem that we're still, still dealing with today. <laughs> but what we're, the weirder part of what happened is that it became a congressional constituent service boondoggle, because in addition to giving away carp, they also gave away goldfish, because the carp came from the goldfish. And you could write your member of Congress in the 1880s and 1890s and ask for a goldfish, from the Babcock Lakes. And then how
3: did they
1: send them?
2: I don't know.
1: That's really weird. <laughs> it's like,
2: like, the, it's the like now how you can get a flag that was flown on, on the Capitol. Sure, you they fly to to, the goldfish could above get, the Capitol. You, you could get a goldfish. They were a
3: live goldfish?
2: A live goldfish. Like on
3: the Pony Express?
5: Wait, can you just explain the relationship between the goldfish and the carp for yeah, me? Goldfish, ca- carp, carp, or... Um, a kind of goldfish? A goldfish, yeah. Oh. Really? Believe, so maybe yes. the bags in which they put the carp was how they delivered them.
2: I don't know. Twenty thousand. There were twenty thousand carpet citizens. bags. Uh, uh, uh. Um, <laughs> where's the carpe DM joke now? Uh, there were twenty thousand goldfish a year were being sent out by members of Congress to citizens, and at one point, a third of all residents of the District of Columbia had at their home a Babcock Lake goldfish. Also, there's this other weird piece of it, which is that they would—they need to keep down the eels and catfish, which like to eat the carp. So they would drain the lakes, partially drain the lakes every spring, and then go in and <laughs> murder all the eels and catfish.
5: <laughs> the original um, draining the swamp.
2: So, there we cut Exactly. This is what happened. So... It, Finally, in the 18, uh, I think in the 1890s, they realized this is a terrible congressional boondoggle. We're, <laughs> we're sending goldfish all over the country, and they're like, we've got to stop doing this. So they, they got rid of it, and they ultimately, they literally drained them, And they, although then they, part of it became the tidal basin, part of the land became the tidal basin, and then they built the Jefferson Memorial. So it was, in fact, the, the draining of the swamp came from these carp, these carp lakes. Think about how simple we were back then. Maybe like,
3: we oh, could do that again instead of building the wall.
2: Oh, I'd like a
5: goldfish. Build,
3: bake, strain them. Be better.
5: Definitely. Bring back
3: carp for all,
6: goldfish. I have
5: one more announcement, which is that um, Jessica Reyes, wherever you are, Jason is uh, madly in love with you, so um, you need to uh, just have that affirmed by me. It just came in over... Strangely, James Comey sent an email about that, too, so... I don't know what
2: you've been doing, but... um. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Kirsten Holtz put together this live show. Thank you to the Warner Theatre for having us. What a great venue. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, who did our lovely introduction, is the chief content officer of Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network, and you can check out all the Panoply podcasts at panoply.fm. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and Evan McMullen, thank you for coming out. We'll talk to you next week.